0: Well, I've got a timer here, and I'm going to try to keep it to an hour, even if we're over a little bit. We went an hour and 12 minutes the week you weren't here, so... Oh, there? Yeah. But, see, that's when I knew I had permission to go over. <laughs> okay, well, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for these records that you have passed down through the generations once handed down to the saints so that we could learn about your Son, Jesus Christ, We thank you for his ministry on earth. We thank you that we get so much detail that we can learn from. We pray that we uh, do receive this and learn from it, and that it glorify you. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. We get to deal with the controversial issue of the Sabbath today. This uh, eventually becomes the very issue that turns the Pharisees against Jesus and causes them to reject him. It is a controversial issue, to say the least. We're still in the process of authenticating the king. We are going to see him still continuing in his, uh, using his miracles to authenticate his message. He's going to send out his 12 apostles to authenticate his message with their miracles that he gives them power to do. Uh, but first, we're going to see what came of the second uh, the second stage in the investigation of the Sanhedrin, of Jesus Christ. The second stage began in our last message, where they began to interrogate him. They are no longer observing silently. They are now openly asking him questions, trying to trip him up, to contradict him, to have him answer for the things that are not lining up with their theology. Their theology can broadly be described as the tradition of the elders. It is not necessarily biblical theology. It is rabbinic theology. And this is the main point of dissension between Jesus and the Pharisees. The first issue then we see in the text is the issue of fasting. This happens immediately after the conversation where, uh, which Christ had with the Pharisees, where they began to interrogate him and say "You were eating with publicans and sinners, Uh, shouldn't you, the king, be eating rather with Pharisees and noble people of Israel? He says it's not the righteous who need a doctor, it is the sick. Then he tells them to go learn what their own law says about mercy and kindness. Here then, the disciples of John come up to him. Perhaps he is even still at Matthew Levi's house having a celebration about Matthew's conversion. These disciples of John come up to him and say, uh, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. In other words, we, those who are faithful, are doing the same things as those Pharisees are doing, and yet you are not. What is up with that? Naturally, these disciples of John probably don't want to be in the camp of the Pharisees. They are probably not trying to trip up Jesus here, but rather asking, what is the difference between your disciples and us? Why are you celebrating while we are mourning? This is an opportunity then for Jesus to share with them the message of the kingdom. And he tells them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. At this time, the kingdom is being offered to Israel. There is no reason for mourning. It will be rejected, and we see that implicitly here in Jesus' statement. There will come a time for mourning, but right now is not the time. They have misconstrued the purpose for fasting, and so they continue to do it while it is not the right time either that or they have misunderstood or not yet heard uh, the message of the kingdom. Now with John's disciples, it is impossible that they have not heard the message of the kingdom. So why then are they mourning when the kingdom is being offered? Jesus then gives them three parables. Three parables that define the distinction here between the theology of the Pharisees and the theology of Uh, Moses, from the Mosaic law. So he tells them these parables, "No uh, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. The Pharisees had devised over the past 400 plus years multiple laws or regulations to patch the holes In the law of Moses, holes which they saw which did not exist. So they would try to fill them in with more regulations, more laws, to keep them from breaking the Mosaic law. And this Jesus describes as similar to patching up a cloth with a new cloth. Eventually when the new cloth begins to fade or shrink, it's going to tear away from the old. It's not going to match it either. The second parable he gives them, he says, no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out. The skins will be ruined, but the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Wineskins were made out of skin, naturally, and it was elastic at first, but after a few times of wine going through the curing process inside of them, expanding, it would lose its elasticity and become rigid. You couldn't put wine in it any longer, new wine, because new wine would expand and break the skin. They would use them for water bottles, but they could no longer hold something new. The Mosaic Law is not designed to hold something new. It was once delivered, and it was delivered as a unit. You cannot pour something new into it without losing both the wine skin and the wine that was poured into it. Finally, Jesus concludes, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new wine, for he says the old is good enough. Now, after the last 400 years, most had probably forgotten or never even practiced the actual Mosaic law, as was handed down by Moses. Because they had so corrupted the Mosaic law that no one actually experienced the fellowship and closeness with God that the law provided They had built a fence around the law. No one actually even came close to it. No one touched the law because they were so preoccupied with the legalism that had surrounded it. The process of getting this fence around the law was noble at first, but still misplaced. In about 450 BC, after they had begun to return from Babylon, they recognized that they had been exiled from their land for breaking the Sabbath, for breaking the Mosaic law. They didn't want to inadvertently break the law anymore. So they began to devise regulations that would keep them from breaking the law. They could break these new regulations without getting close enough to the law to actually break the law. They would use a system called pill-pull logic, which means sharp that has the idea of a sharp edge that would divide. They would cut these laws up into little pieces and devise new laws around each piece to make sure that not even a step towards breaking a law would occur. This began with the Safarim, who began to build these extra laws. They built from 450 B.C. to about 30 B.C. Before they were then canonized by the Tanaim, the Tanaim came about and said, we cannot disagree with the Torah, and we cannot disagree with the Safarim, but we can disagree with one another on the interpretation of a law. And so they elevated the laws of the Safarim to the same level as the Torah. These laws had now been codified. They were tantamount to breaking the law of Moses these are the laws that Jesus is encountering when the Pharisees claim that he is breaking the law of Moses. He is not breaking the law of Moses. He is breaking past the fence, the fence that they built around the law, the law whose purpose was to bring fellowship between God and the people, and they had been barred from fellowship. Jesus was breaking through that barrier to fellowship. This goes beyond our Period of time here, but beginning in or 220 AD, the Amoraim came about and they codified the Tenaim laws and began to fill in their own laws as well. And that resulted in a book called the Talmud. Actually, it's a collection of books larger than the Encyclopedia Britannica. The, uh, the Mishnah is the collection of Tenaim laws, which codified the Safarim. The Gemara is the collection of Amorim commentary on the Mishnah. This is by far the largest. The Mishnah is about 1,500 pages long, still longer than our Old and New Testament generally. The Gemara is 150 books on average. This together makes the Talmud, and the Talmud is probably the single most uh, detrimental uh, thing to Jewish theology, the thing that stands in their way of understanding their own scripture. It has not helped them keep from breaking the Mosaic law. It has basically single-handedly kept them from even knowing what the law is. They have reinterpreted it so thoroughly. Naturally, When the Safarim laws began to become codified in 30 BC, the people knew the difference still between the Torah and what became the Mishnah. And so the rabbis who were trying to elevate these laws to the level of scripture uh, rather deceptively came up with this false mythology around the Mishnah. They claimed that when Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai, he wrote part of it and memorized the vast larger part of it. He passed down what he memorized to Joshua and then to the judges, to the kings, and to the prophets. None of them ever said a word about it. But then the sovereign received this oral law passed down from Moses with equal authority to the written law and began to teach it to the rabbis and began to teach it to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees held this oral law. Some examples of this, as we can see in that fence built around the law, would be the, uh, the law not allowing a Jew to eat dairy or meat at the same meal. There was a law in the uh, Mosaic law that said they could not sieve a kid in its mother's milk. This was to keep them from practicing the Canaanite ritual sacrificed to Baal in which they would boil a kid goat in its mother's milk. However, 1,400 years after the Canaanites were no longer around, this was not present in their uh, interpretation, and so they began to use pill-pull logic To cut this law up into pieces and make sure that no one even came close to breaking the law. So, just in case a piece of cheese came from the milk of the mother of whatever meat they were eating, they could not eat dairy or meat at the same meal. This was generally the laws created by the Safarim. The Tanaim would come along and say, that's not good enough. We have to continue to plug up the holes. What if At one meal, someone eats dairy, and a flake of cheese is left on the plate. And then the next meal, they eat meat. That piece of cheese comes off on the meat, it enters the stomach, it boils in the stomach acids, and the kid is seethed in the milk of the mother. Jews were not allowed to eat dairy off the same plate they eat meat off of, They had two sets of dishes. If the dish ever got cross-contaminated, it could no longer ever be used by a Jew. They would either have to destroy it or give it to a Gentile. This is what Jesus was up against. What they had been convinced was logical. Might have worked for human logic, but it seems a little strange to us, and it is, in essence, unbiblical. The fence that they built around the law did not protect them from breaking the law. It added to the law. And rather than making it a means of fellowship, the law, it made it a burden that was too heavy to bear. It made it a legalistic system that kept them from God. Worst, perhaps, were the Sabbath regulations. There were very few regulations given on the Sabbath. It was a day of rest. It was a day where they were not to work, but it was never intended for the 1,500 additional laws that were created by the Safarim and the Tanaim around the Sabbath. And these are where Jesus has his strongest uh, disagreements with the Pharisees. And he seems to be purposefully perturbing them in this area. The Sabbath was the center of the Mosaic law. It was the sign of the Mosaic law. It was supposed to be a gift to Israel and instead they had turned it into a weight that enslaved Israel. So we start looking at this Sabbath controversy by looking at an act of mercy that Jesus performed on the Sabbath day In John 5, starting in verse 1, we see that after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, when the feast day is not specified which day it is, generally that is the Passover feast. The best known feast, the most popular, the widest celebrated was Passover. It need not be defined. So this probably marks the one-year anniversary of Christ's public ministry. He has been So far observed and now interrogated, and he is about to be rejected during his second year of ministry. But he continues, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred up the water Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. This is a textual variant. It has very good support, though. This probably is part of the original text, and so we take it as literal. This was happening in Israel at the pool of Bethsaida, and this man, who had been ill for 38 years, was waiting by the waters to enter in first, but he could not because he was so ill, he was a paralytic. He could not move himself into the waters, and so he needed someone to help. The help that Jesus comes and offers him is not the help that he expects, but it's the help that he needed. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, 38 years, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Now I know we get these kind of responses from people who don't have the power to heal us in this way. Well, just do it. Just get up. So it may have frustrated him at first but it wouldn't take more than a little bit of effort to see that he had been healed. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. In the back of your mind, you might hear, dun, dun, dun. That's usually what comes next whenever the the gospel writers say it was the Sabbath that day. Jesus is about to get in trouble with the Pharisees. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now where in the Mosaic law does it say that? It doesn't. But under the Mishnah, they were not allowed to carry any item from public to private or from private to public residence. The pool of Bethsaida was considered a private area. He carried his mat into the street, and so he was crossing that barrier of public and private. Thus, whatever he was carrying was considered labor, was considered work, no matter how far he went. But he answered, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. This man recognized the authority of the one who could heal. He had the authority to tell him what to do, and he did it. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But The man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Now, this is more important than we realize at first. This man had no idea who healed him. Jesus was not healing on the basis of faith at this point. He was healing for the purpose of showing them who he was. You cannot have faith in someone you don't know. Had Jesus said, I am Jesus, this man might have responded, who? Jesus, for his first year and a little more of his ministry, used miracles to demonstrate his authority, to authenticate his message, to show that he actually had the power to bring about the kingdom he was offering. And so this man, who did not even know who he was, came to know who he was by his power. The man healed this man who could not have yet had faith in him. So he was healed physically, but Jesus doesn't leave him in his physical healing. He comes back and heals him spiritually as well, when the man is ready. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. This is a message of continuing in fellowship. Continue to grow in that which has been given to you. We can assume now that this man has faith. He has met Jesus again. Now he has the opportunity to know who Jesus is. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. There is probably nothing sinister in this. He went and told them the information they had sought. He was probably excited that he had met the man who healed him. But the Pharisees had other ideas in mind. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. He was breaking their Sabbath laws. He was not breaking the Mosaic law again. He was breaking their Sabbath laws. They began to persecute him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. At this point, the rejection had already been settled in their hearts. They will have an unofficial rejection of him, in which his ministry will change, and then they will have an official rejection of him, in which they will crucify him. They were seeking to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, liberal Christians today will say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, obviously in this verse, we see that the Jews understood that his claims were a claim to deity. He was claiming equality with God because the firstborn son of a father In Jewish culture meant that he was equal with that father. To be the inheritor is to have the same identity. His claims that Jesus was his father and not the collective father of Israel but he would use the personal my father. This was a claim to deity. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. He is giving here a defense. How can he call himself the Son of God? Well, number one, he does the works of the Father. For the Father loves the Son shows him all the things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. These are works that show that he is who he says he is. Additionally, He not only does the works of the Father, but he has the authority of the Father. It says here, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Now the Jews knew from the Old Testament that God alone and no man had the authority to judge heaven and earth, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He could not be clearer about who he is, what authority he comes by. Here is his third response. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The Jews knew that only God had the ability to offer life. He who has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Now, under the Mosaic law, it only took two or three witnesses to confirm something. Here, Jesus gives a fourth. Not only does he do the works of God, not only does he have the authority of God to judge, not only does he give life, but he also will bring about the resurrection of the dead. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, notice, Jesus uses two titles for himself here He is the Son of God, he is of equal authority to God. He comes on behalf of God, but he is the son of man. The son of man is a title found first in Zechariah, or not Zechariah, Ezekiel, and it is a messianic title. He is drawing together these two ideas, the son of God, deity, and the son of man, the Messiah. They did not expect the Messiah to be God himself. Here, Jesus is teaching them something new. The Son of Man is the Son of God. The Messiah is deity. And here he says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, the good deeds here can only be done for by one who has life in them. That resurrection to life is on the basis of faith. Faith allows good works to flow through a person. These evil deeds are consistent with an unregenerate life. Those will be resurrected to judgment. There are two resurrections. Both are eternal. One is to eternal life, and one is to eternal death and punishment. In the lake of fire, and those are both depicted in Revelation chapter 20, also written by John. Jesus then concludes. He summarizes all that he has described here and gives the conclusion of what that then means. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, first, he is sent by God. He has the authority of God. He demonstrates this in himself, and later, at the end of our discussion tonight, he is going to send twelve in his name. These are going to be given authority to cast out demons by Jesus Christ's authority. They will be equal to him in authority because they were sent by him. The same is true of Jesus sent by God who has equal authority to him. But now, once again, Jesus is going to give not two, not three, but four witnesses to himself. The first one is John. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. This happened just four chapters earlier in John. In t- John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. At first, John's message was received with gladness, with excitement never so by the Pharisees though. The people of Israel will have the choice coming up here pretty soon. Will they follow Jesus or will they follow the Pharisees? Will they receive the message of Jesus or will they receive the message of the Pharisees? Here is the second witness to Jesus. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me and that the Father has sent me. We saw this as well when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees at his very first uh, day of being investigated by the Pharisees. He said, which is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to tell this man, stand up and walk? It is much easier for John to claim that Jesus is the Son of God. It is altogether another thing for Jesus to do the works of God. So his second testimony to himself is his own works, his own abilities as the sent one of God. The third witness here, the Father who sent me. He has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who He sent now why is it that they have not heard his voice well the Pharisees were not present at the baptism of John those who were coming to John to be baptized were those who would believe in Jesus Christ so they were not there to hear God's voice speaking from the heavens saying behold this is my son in whom I am well pleased that was the testimony of God to his son the third witness to Jesus. Now here is the fourth witness, and this one would really affect the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves why were they searching the scriptures and not finding Jesus because they were adding to the scriptures the very purpose of the law was not just for fellowship with Israel and God but to point towards the messiah to point towards the one who would come and fulfill the law they had lost the law by corrupting it and adding to it and so they had missed the messiah when he came so the very scriptures that they thought they knew so well because they had received the tradition of the elders by which to interpret them, they had missed because the plain sense was corrupted by the additions. <clears throat> now, Jesus makes a prophecy here that is chilling. He says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me, but if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And we talked about this a bit on Sunday, The way John structures this, which is probably the way Jesus structured this sentence, it anticipates that this will actually happen. This is an if-then statement, but it expects that the if will come to pass. Another will come in his own name. He will come by the power of Satan, and they will cut a covenant with him. Israel, as a nation, will receive the Antichrist but they will not receive Jesus Christ Jesus says how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God do not think that I will accuse you before the father the one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope the very scriptures they interpret by their own devised methods are the very scriptures that accuse them and condemn them before God. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I don't think I'd be too happy with Jesus if he said that to me, but I would hope that would change my heart. It has the opposite effect on the Pharisees. It begins to harden their hearts. Now we look at some more laws that they had devised around the Sabbath. Remember, there are 1,500 different laws, so there is essentially no end of laws to choose from here. They could probably find just about anything wrong on the Sabbath with any activity of any person. But here they accuse Jesus and his disciples of breaking four specific Mishnaic laws. In Mark chapter 2, verse 23, it says it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Again, where in the law of Moses is this ever said that it is not lawful? Now, they might have taken issue with him simply walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. A Pharisee was not permitted to walk on grass on the Sabbath because perhaps there might be a wild grain stalk that they would kick over. And when they kicked it over, the seeds might come loose and they would be guilty of reaping on the Sabbath. Then they might accidentally step on those grains and twist their foot and it would come loose from the shell. They would be guilty of threshing on the Sabbath. And then the tail of their coat might brush by the seeds. The wind would blow the chaff away. They would be guilty of winnowing on the Sabbath. And then a mouse might come and eat the seed. And when it enters into the rodent's mouth, they would be guilty of storing on the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are walking through these grain fields, obviously kicking over plenty of stocks. And then they pick some, and they're guilty of threshing or reaping. They rub them in their fingers, which it says in Luke, and they're guilty of threshing. They probably blow the chaff away before putting it in their mouth. They're guilty of winnowing. They put it in their own mouths. And they're guilty of storing. Pharisees come and say, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? If I were Jesus, I'd be rolling my eyes at this point. But he actually answers them. I don't know if I would condescend to do that. I'd just walk on by, but he's a little smarter than me. And Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he, has compa- or he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. They'd probably be stumped on this one because they didn't believe David was condemned for this. They did not condemn David, but they were condemning Jesus fact of the matter was, it's true that it was not lawful for anyone except the priest to eat the bread, but it was lawful for the priest to give the bread to anyone. And David did receive the bread, and he gave the bread then to his companions. And this did not break the law of God, the law of Moses, because the law of God never declares that you cannot do works of mercy or works of necessity on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not a weight for Israel to bear, it was a gift for them. The need to eat would uh, not be negated by Sabbath laws. If you needed to eat, you could eat. If you needed food and you needed to get it by plucking grain stalks and rubbing them in your fingers and putting them in your mouth, this would not break the law of Moses. If you needed to heal someone on the Sabbath, you could do that because this was a work of mercy. You know, the Jews did not even allow someone to put water, warm water on a wound on the Sabbath. If you got cut, you had to wait until the next day to begin treating your wound. This is how bad the Sabbath laws got. Obviously, they had divorced themselves completely from the spirit of the law. Jesus responds then, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Jews blatantly disagree. They say that Israel was made to glorify the Sabbath. They push the Sabbath all the way back to the seventh day of creation and say that that was the Sabbath. God created man the day before for the Sabbath, just like he created the earth and the creatures before man for the man. What came before it was intended for that which came later. And so the Sabbath, not man, was king of creation. Actually, they even called her the queen of God. They personified the Sabbath and in essence deified her. But in fact, Jesus interprets the law of Moses and says, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. It was a gift, God's rest. And there was, in essence, no rest for the Jews of the first century on the Sabbath. There was only worry and fear. Now we come to the last in this succession of Sabbath controversies. This happens on a different Sabbath, happens in all of the synoptic gospels. I chose the passage here in Luke. It says, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely. The difference in the scene here leads one to believe that the Pharisees may have planted this man in the crowd. They were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath, so that they might find reason to accuse him. They are trying to set him up. Unfortunately for them, he is a step ahead of them. Likewise, he is a bit smarter than them. He knew what they were thinking. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. He got up and came forward and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? Now, works that would save a life were permitted on the Sabbath, but a life must be in danger for them to act. The man who had been sick for 38 years, obviously, he was not at the point of death. He had been long in his disease. The same with Peter's mom, whose disease was chronic. There was no need for that Sabbath to heal. He could have waited for Sunday. But he didn't. He healed in an act of mercy because it is better to do good than to do harm on the Sabbath. <clears throat> oh, Lost a verse in here. He tells the Pharisees that they would collect the Um, a fallen sheep from a pit, why would they not then help a man who was hurt on the Sabbath? He says, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Why would you help a creature that is not as valuable as a man, but you would not help a man? You can almost sense Jesus' disappointment here at this point. He's looking around at them with anger, and he is grieved at their hardness of heart. He asks them a question with which they respond in silence. They have no answer to him, because the answer would contradict themselves. They remain silent. They rather would be wrong than to agree with him. So he said to the man now, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Again, not on the basis of faith. This man was even part of a scheme to entrap Jesus. But he was showing his own authority. His authority to heal, his authority over the Sabbath, his authority to interpret the law. And he was drawing out, the difference between the law of Moses and the tradition of the elders which had been deceiving Israel for so long <clears throat> these Pharisees responded with anger they themselves were filled with rage the idea here is they were so enraged that logic began to escape them they were no longer in control of their thoughts they were controlled by their thoughts they discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, this is interesting because conspiring is not permitted on the Sabbath under mishnaic law. Under the law of Moses, it's not permitted at all. But under mishnaic law, it was not allowed on the Sabbath. We'll see that again when we get to the trial of Jesus Christ in a few months. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Oh, I missed another slide. Uh, These Pharisees begin to conspire with the Herodians. The Herodians are a group of pro-Roman occupation. They side with the Herodian dynasty because they have benefits from the Herodian dynasty similar to the publicans or the tax collectors working with Rome. The Pharisees here are going against their own ideals. The uh, radical Pharisees were called zealots, and they even engaged in assassinations of those who sided with Rome. These are two opposite ends of the political spectrum in Israel, two opposite ends of the theological spectrum, and they are joining hands around a common enemy, Jesus Christ, in efforts to destroy him. Jesus withdraws to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee follow him, and also from Judea and Jerusalem. We're not surprised by that. But here they also come from Edomia, Now, Herod was from Edomia. In fact, he was a royal line from Edomia. Edomia is the New Testament name for the Old Testament, Edom. This is not Israel. This is south of Judah, beyond the Jordan, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, north of Galilee. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Within the year His first year of ministry now, he has an international audience. People are coming from all around the Middle East to come see this man who is healing and casting out demons. He told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him, for he healed many, and the result result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. He earnestly warned them not to tell anyone who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, Behold, the servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Who have now joined this crowd. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Matthew has connected this prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, and said that it is literally fulfilled here by the Messiah, by Jesus Christ. So it is after these Sabbath controversies, when the rejection of Jesus has been settled in the hearts of the Pharisees, when they have begun to conspire against him, and they will now begin a public opposition of him to try to sway the rest of Israel, to join them in their opposition. At this point, Jesus chooses 12. 12 disciples out of the throngs that are following him and learning from him. He chooses these 12 to become apostles. He will still have a larger group of disciples. In fact, we see 70 engaged later on in preparing him to make his way down to Jerusalem. But these 12 apostles are chosen for a very specific purpose. Just as he is sent by his father with his authority, so Jesus is about to send these 12 with his authority to preach the message to Israel. The time is running short for all of Israel to hear the message and have the opportunity to receive or reject him as the king. And so it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God, in preparation, obviously here, for the next stage of his ministry, the stage where he will be openly opposed. When day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Here there is a clear distinction between disciples and apostles. Disciples are simply learners. Those who come to him and seek to learn from him, they have to be received as disciples. We saw that when the first three or four first two I can't remember Uh, it was John and his brother James and then Peter and Andrew they came to him and they asked where he lived and he said come and see he received them as his disciples here he is calling them as something more than disciples He is calling them to go out with his authority on his behalf for the purpose of preaching. Here is Mark's account. He went up to the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve so that they would be with him. That is the first purpose. He will surround himself with twelve that will not at any time leave him. They will be together with him. The other, at least 70, if not more, would come and go as they learned from him. These would now travel with him. They would be with him so that he could send them out to preach, to have authority to cast out demons. This was not a free authority. This was an authority that they would exercise on his behalf to validate the message that he gave them to preach just as they preached his words so they would use his authoritative power over the demons. This was not a blanket uh, authority given to all believers at this point. It will extend for a time to other believers in the apostolic age, after Christ's resurrection and ascension, to validate the message of the church. But here it is given solely to these twelve These 12 apostles, in fact, only 14 are ever called apostles. The replacement to Judas would become an apostle, and Paul would be called by Jesus to be an apostle. But no apostle would have the authority to give an apostleship of Jesus to another man. Only Jesus could send someone out on his own behalf. So who were these apostles? There were 12 of them and they are named all sorts of different wacky things in Scripture. It's pretty hard to tell who's who, and it's pretty hard to come up with a list of 12 unless you realize that most of the odd names are surnames or their father's name as a, for example, Bartholomew, Bartholmai, because Nathaniel, who is sometimes called Bartholomew, is the son of Talmai. So, Bartholomew, when you see him, that's Nathanael, the one who was under the fig tree. Peter has three names, and those are explained for us. Simon is his Hebrew name, Cephas is his Aramaic name, and Peter is his Greek name. And these all have the meaning of stone. Andrew is Peter's brother. John and James are brothers. They are both the sons of Zebedee. Jesus nicknames them the sons of thunder or the sons of emotion. John becomes the writer of the book of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. Peter becomes the author of 1st and 2nd Peter. He dies in Babylon. John dies on Patmos. Philip is Nathanael's friend. He was the fourth one, to encounter and receive, or become a disciple of Christ. He got Nathanael and brought him to Christ. Nathanael was the one who was under the fig tree, the son of Talmai. Thomas was a twin. He is, or his twin is not part of this 12 apparently, but the name Thomas, Toma in Hebrew, Didymus in Greek means twin. Matthew, we've met him. He's called Levi in every gospel except for Matthew, because Matthew means gift of God, and uh, Levi is his Hebrew name. Matthew was renamed from Levi to Matthew by Jesus. James and Judas, (coughs) there are two other, or there's another James and there's another Judas. These are the sons of Alphaeus, this Judas is sometimes called Thaddeus. And then there's Simon the Zealot. And there is Judas Iscariot. There are a few observations that can be made about these. Peter and Andrew were brothers. John and James were brothers. And James and, Alphaeus, the son, or James and Judas, the sons of Alphaeus, were brothers. So there's three sets of brothers. Half of these disciples were brothers with one or another. We also have people from two sides of the political spectrum. We have on one hand the Pharisees and the Herodians conspiring against Jesus, but here we have Matthew a publican in fellowship together with Jesus and with Simon the Zealot who in any other social circumstance, Matthew, would be a target of Simon's assassinations. So where one comes together for evil, Jesus brings together for good. And this we will see continually as we go through his ministry with his disciples, especially as he begins to train them for what comes after his rejection. Now, I have one more observation for you, but it's not in the PowerPoint. It's in your handout. And if you take a look at that, you see three different color codes. Four different times, these 12 apostles are listed out, one name after another. There are only three that are consistently listed in the same order, Simon Peter, Philip, and James, the son of Alphaeus. The rest seemed to be loosely categorized under these three. It was probable then that there were three different groups within these uh, disciples. Simon Peter was the head of one group, Philip the head of another group, and James, the son of Alphaeus, head of another group. Those which are under them would not be lesser disciples, but simply they are responsible for the disciples under them. Now, this makes even more sense when we look at who is in Simon Peter's group. This was Jesus' inner circle of fellowship. Simon, or Peter, James, and John, together with Andrew's, or Peter's brother, Andrew, here. There's not much theologically here to extrapolate, but simply we can observe that there was order and organization in these twelve apostles. All right. And that's it. Next week, the, uh, uh, what are we doing next week? We are completing Messiah's authority, his authority to interpret the law, and we are reading Matthew 5 through 8. I know I didn't finish writing that on this slide. Matthew 5 through 8 is the Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom Righteousness. Uh, so in your student manual, that is lessons 55 through 57.